Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. Sarah, how are you doing today? Good. We are getting a little bit of a heat wave right now, but it's not the heat dome situation, which I am relieved for, Uh, but it is like plus 30 yeah, it's just a little uncomfortable. Yeah, but I'm not like physically melting. Right, exactly. Like plus 30 is about as hot as it should ever get in Calgary. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, whereas during heat dome times, it was like plus 40. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Uh, how are you? I'm doing all right. I'm very busy with my new job. And so I'm just sort of learning how to balance that with everything else that I do. And um, it's it's just made me a busy boy. It's a learning process. Mm-hmm. Even I still am learning how to balance job with other duties and things. Mm. So it's, and you know, I am older than you, so <laughs> by like a month. So yeah. <laughs> One exciting thing that did happen is uh, we just released our second horror-adjacent bonus episode that was on the 1999 The Mummy. Yes. And I think it actually ended up being like our longest episode ever at like two hours and 30 minutes. Yeah, I'd have to check it against how long the Godzilla episode was because I think that was the previous title holder. Um, But it's definitely might be up there. Yeah. It It won't officially be our longest episode, though, because it's bonus episode. Sure. (laughs) It is a very fun episode, though. Um, We thank all of our supporters on Patreon who make those bonus horror-adjacent episodes possible. Speaking of which, we have two new patrons to thank. So shout out to Colton and Laura. Thanks, Colton. Thanks, Laura. They are new arrivals at our Patreon where they have access to many goodies, uh, including bonus audio, uh, written series like film reviews and my gothic retrospective series as well as you know all those treats from our special october months so if you'd like to be like colton and laura you can head over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast so what are we watching this week ben this week sarah we're watching a movie called the unearthly from 1957 directed by boris petroff under the name brooke l peters okay uh because we are in 1957 this title could refer to ghosts or aliens. Mm -hmm. Which is it, Ben? It's not aliens. So is it ghosts? We'll see. I don't know hardly anything about this movie. (laughs) Maybe the ghosts of aliens. Who knows? Yeah. So the film's director, Boris Petrov, was born in Saratov, Russia in 1894. And he was a ballet dancer who emigrated to the United States after the Bolshevik Revolution. He performed as a ballet dancer in the U.S. during the 1920s um, and then transitioned from performing to directing, starting with a 1929 performance called Noah's Lark that was a parody (laughs) of a recent (laughs) Noah's Ark movie. (laughs) Okay. 
And then in 1936, he got the opportunity to direct a feature film, uh, a Poverty Row musical called Hats Off. His next film credit after that, however, is as the producer of the RKO adventure picture Arctic Fury in 1949. That's a really big jump in Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Do you know what he was up to? I don't. Maybe he was like starting a family and or he went back to ballet. Just on a, you know, career break during World War Two. Oh, shit. He was probably in the war, Ben. <laughs> After producing Arctic Fury in 1949, that led to him producing the aggressively mediocre stock footage hodgepodge movie Two Lost Worlds in 1951. After Two Lost Worlds, Petrov would always direct the films he produced Um, but under the name Brooke L. Peters, presumably because the name Boris Petrov wasn't great to have in the United States in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. These would be cheap B pictures uh, for the most part. There was Red Snow in 1952, which was about soldiers in Alaska foiling a Soviet invasion. Sure. Uh, This was followed in 1954 by The World Dances, a documentary about folk dances around the world. So he he has just a hodgepodge of topics. Yeah, he's just feels like he's a director who's making whatever he can scrounge up the money for at the time. Which brings us to The Unearthly in 1957. (laughs) Why was Petrov interested in doing a cheap horror movie? Well, it's hard to say other than everyone was doing them and they were making bank. It's probably because they were making bank. His wife uh, was a woman named Jane Mann, and she came up with the original story for The Unearthly. Um, So it's hard to say whether, like, she was like, you know, hey, Boris, I have, like, this idea for a movie. You want to hear it out and maybe make it? Or if it was Boris being like, we're going to make a horror movie and I need an idea. And her being like, well, what about this? Like, I don't know which came first, chicken or egg kind of thing. Sure. Um, However, the screenplay for the film was written by John D.F. Black. Now, Black was born in 1932, and The Unearthly is his first writing credit. He would later claim that all that Jane Mann did for the screenplay was type it up, uh, and that she got a writing credit because she was the boss's wife. However, she also has a writing credit on two of Petroff's later movies. Mm -hmm. But also writing up the notes uh from someone is work and should be recognized Mm. uh these two later movies that jane mann contributed writing to uh were called anatomy of a psycho and shotgun wedding okay black meanwhile would use a pseudonym on this screenplay so it's his first writing credit but it's not even his name uh he's credited here as jeffrey dennis (laughs) um but he would go on to write a lot of television and is probably best remembered today for having been the story editor on the original Star Trek. Oh. A position he left after 11 episodes that would later be filled by DC Fontana. Uh, He got tired of Gene Roddenberry rewriting everyone's scripts, uh, even though it was 100% necessary for Gene Roddenberry to rewrite everyone's scripts in the early days of Star Trek. Black wrote the classic episode, The Naked Time. Ooh. Uh, which is the one where everyone gets a space disease that makes them drunk, essentially. Yes. Uh, and he passed away in 2018. Now, Jane Mann passed away in 2008. 
And Boris Petrov passed away in 1972. Yeah, well, in 1957, he's real old. Yes. Yeah, so he would have been in his 80s when he passed away. The Unearthly was originally titled The House of Monsters and was shot in six days in May of 1957. (laughs) So shot and released same year. Yeah. Uh, It stars that master of never saying no to a paycheck, 51-year-old actor John Carradine. We last saw him hamming it up in The Black Sleep in 1956. Since then, uh, he has appeared as Aaron in The Ten Commandments, as well as in Around the World in 80 Days, which somehow won Best Picture. Carradine was going through a lot of personal turmoil at the time of making this movie. Um, He had a very complicated personal life. Uh, He had two sons from his first marriage and then three sons with his wife, uh, Sonia Sorel, who also had a son from a previous marriage. Boys all around. Yes. So that's a total of six sons so far. Um, Is he Gaston? (laughs) Now, the thing is, Carradine and Sorel were going through an acrimonious divorce in 1957 And Carradine married his third wife the same year. Now, his third wife had two sons from her previous relationships, bringing the total to eight. However, um, the custody battle between Carradine and his second wife got nasty. And so their three sons together were made wards of the court, Uh, which meant they got put in a uh, home which the kids described later as being basically prison. Uh, There were like bars on the window. They couldn't be in the same room as their parents. Like visiting hours, they had like that prison glass between them. After a long and difficult custody battle, uh, Carradine eventually won custody with Sorel being prohibited from seeing her children for the next eight years. Uh, How many sons are we at? Eight, once he marries his third wife. So Carradine should have starred in that show, My Three Sons, only retitle it. I got eight sons. (laughs) (laughs) I love your obsession with this terrible 1960s sitcom that you've never seen and never will. I might someday. (laughs) Don't squash my dreams. Okay. Our favorite B-movie bombshell, Allison Hayes, is back in this one. Uh, We first encountered her as the witch Livia in The Undead, Mm -hmm. um, and we last saw her in Zombies of Mora Tau. Uh, She was a model and actress. She's 27 at the time of making this movie, and she's joined in the eye candy department by 28-year-old actress and model Sally Todd, who was Playboy's Playmate of the Month for February of 1957. When did Playboy get started? Playboy got started in Chicago in 1953. Because this is like the second time that it's popped up on the show. In two weeks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like Beco- interesting. Yeah. Becoming a bit of a cultural force, um, you know, appearing as the centerfold in Playboy is one way to make sure people like know your name. Um, <laughs> and it makes kind of know sense. something about you. Right. And makes sense that like if we're sort of drawing out performers for these b horror movies whose like purpose in the movie is to be eye candy like it sort of makes sense as like a source to draw upon i guess i guess like you know what i mean like it's like hey we need a babe oh hey i just saw sally on the yeah centerfold yeah exactly 
call up her agent. Right. Who I guess would be Hugh Hefner right now. That's not how Playboy works. I don't know how Playboy works, Ben. I only read the articles. (laughs) (laughs) Now, another returning familiar face for us is Tor Johnson, Ah. the Swedish wrestler turned monster movie actor who we last saw in Plan 9 from Outer Space. Here he plays a character named Lobo, uh, similar but distinct from his character in Ed Wood's Bride of the Monster, in that this Lobo can talk. Oh, well, that's something. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see how thick his accent is, because when he talked in Plan 9 from Outer Space, uh, it was a little thick. Yeah, a little hard to understand. After shooting on the Unearthly was completed, Petrov turned around and sold the picture. Get off his hands. Your problem now. And it was released to theaters on June 28th, 1957 by Republic Pictures. Now, it's been a while since we've seen a movie from Republic Pictures. Uh, For a long time, they were sort of the top B-movie studio. They were like a studio that straddled Poverty Row and the Miners. Um, You know, were known for high-quality serials, things like that. Um, So to check in on how they've been doing, the rise of television has been hard on Republic Studios. The decline in attendance in theaters meant that in 1956, they recorded a profit of only $919,000. Ooh. And in 1957, they produced only 18 feature films. That is really rough for a studio of this time. Yes. After years of having a no exploitation genres rule, Republic realized that they needed to compete with AIP. And so they began putting out movies like Juvenile Jungle and The Young and the Wild. Yeah. Uh, They put Unearthly out on a double feature with Beginning of the End, a Burt I. Gordon production about giant locusts attacking Chicago. Ultimately, this change wasn't enough. And in 1958, a tearful Herbert Yates would inform shareholders that Republic would be ceasing to produce feature films. And they ceased distributing films a year later in 1959, when the company was bought and turned into Republic Corporations, which made its money either renting its film library out to television or renting its studio space out to TV networks, as well as producing plastics and appliances. (laughs) They would sell their studio space uh, in 1969 to CBS, and that would be sort of the end of involvement in Hollywood for Republic Corporations. Okay. The Unearthly was released to DVD by Image Entertainment in 2002. That DVD is out of print. Um, It is a public domain movie and got featured on an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000 at one point. And because it's public domain, it is on our YouTube playlist. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, you can find that playlist at our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Unearthly from 1957, directed by Boris Petrov. See you on the other side, everybody. Oh. 
Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Unearthly from 1957, directed by Boris Petrov. Benjamin, first thoughts. <sighs> yeah. Old-fashioned is what I would say. Mm. Yeah. Um, usually, I say things like that I'm glad that we watch the movies in order because it brings the films into their proper context. Mm-hmm. But in this case, I actually think it worked against this movie because maybe I would like this movie better if I hadn't seen dozens of movies just like it. Decades earlier. Yeah, like there's no new ideas here. You know, a lot of times we'll we'll talk about how like, oh, you know, this movie took a bunch of stuff we've seen before, but put together in a new way or something. But there's nothing really unique here. This is the same old ingredients just reheated. Don't you just love leftovers? Right. Actually, I I usually do love leftovers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, hopefully the listener can stay awake as I speed through this plot synopsis. Yeah. Okay, so we have Grace, a lovely young lady who is brought by her doctor, Dr. Wright, to see Dr. Conway, uh, played by John Carradine. Because of her anxiety, basically, she describes being scared all the time, and it's anxiety. And Dr. Conway is like, yeah, we'll definitely take care of you and like this country home. We'll get you plenty of rest and get this all sorted out. Don't worry. And then as Grace is taken upstairs, Dr. Wright's like, oh, yeah, and Grace, I'll, I'll make sure your father sends your things alone. Dr. Conway goes after Dr. Wright saying like, what do you mean, father? She's supposed to have no one. How dare you bring me a patient who has familial ties? And he's like, Dr. Wright's like, don't worry. He'll think that his daughter has committed suicide when I throw this person, her coat into the river. So they're into this conspiracy together and Grace is not going to get treatment for her anxiety or maybe she will. And then, you know, but there's not going to be a happy ending here for her. Um, now Conway does have an assistant who is also a doctor, um, but referred to as an assistant, um, cause she's a lady. Uh, her name is, uh, Dr. Gilchrist and she gets Grace settled into her new room. Meanwhile, uh, right mentions to Conway, um, so how is uh, that one patient named Harry Jedro doing uh, with, like, your experiments? And Conway's like, excellent, except that he's comatose. The gland didn't go well. And Ben and I both groan. Glands? It's 1957. Yeah. Now Wright is like, what do you mean he's comatose? His sister is asking questions. And Conway's like, right, you fool. She, they're not supposed to have any familial ties. And he's like, I didn't know he had a sister, but she's asking questions. Uh, so that's put a pin in that, I guess. I don't know. Now, I also haven't mentioned um, Conway's servant, literally called servant, named Lobo, who is Tor Johnson, just a big brute. The film does open before the title sequence uh, with him, like, attacking and strangling a patient, but that's not addressed at all, so... Yeah, and she, like, scratches at his face and causes these, like, big scratches to appear on his face that aren't in the rest of the movie, and I was like, oh, wow, this is a really, like, cool opening, and Sarah correctly predicted that any B-horror movie with a really good opening is going to be bad from there on in. It's true. If they blow their load too quickly, Ben, mm-hmm. the rest of it's just going to be 
floppy. Right. And messy. Yes. Metaphors. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, So Lobo, that night, catches a man sneaking around in their garden. Now, Conway identifies this man as murderer Frank Scott, um, who's on the run from the police. And Conway says, I'll give you sanctuary if you agree to be a guinea pig. Because you're like a normal, healthy man. Uh, and Scott's like, fuck. Well, we'll figure this out in the morning. In the morning, we meet some other patients. Natalie, who likes to read pulp novels. And Danny, who appears to be addicted to some kind of drug and gets like angry the closer he gets to when he needs his drugs. Yeah, he uh, he's an asshole. Yes. That seems to be his... His, Why uh, he's in here. Defining characteristic. <laughs> yeah. um, now, both of them have been here for several months. Now, Conway does share his plans with Scott. Namely, that all of this is for experiments with glands to achieve immortality. There's 16 glands in a regular person's body, and I can control these glands to, you know, affect growth, intelligence, etc., well, I've invented a new gland that once installed, there has to be a better word for that, but we'll go with installed, um, and then hit with radioactive rays will cause that person to no longer age and thus have immortality. Um, now Scott's like, well, I don't want to be part of this. And Conway's like, you have no choice. I'm going to call the cops. So he's stuck here. So while Scott and Grace are getting closer, Natalie appears to be next on the experiment list. Now Conway's like, yes, this is going to go perfectly. I've taken every precaution. Everything's going to go great. Uh, eight hours later, when everything's supposed to be healed up and fine, um, Natalie at least is not comatose like Jedro, but she has a mummified face. Mm-hmm. I think the idea is supposed to be a rapid aging, yeah. but she looks like she has a mummified face. It is worth saying that um, everybody at this clinic knows Scott as Mark Houston because Frank Scott is in the news as a you know murderer on the run. That's how uh, the doc identified him. So like Grace, everyone else, they don't know he's Frank Scott, murderer on the run. They just think he's Mark Houston, middle-aged guy. It's at this time that Dr. Wright gives Conway a call and he's like, Jedro's sister's right outside my office. What do I do? And Conway says, don't worry, Jedro's dead. Gilchrist is like, I, I mean, Conway, I just checked on him. He's, he's still comatose, but he's, he's alive. And Conway's like, no, he's dead. So next thing we know, uh, Scott is kind of planning to escape. He did some snooping and came across Natalie, showed Grace. And so now Grace is like, okay, I believe you. Let's get out of here. And they even bring Danny in to rescue him because someone has to care about Danny. Yeah, because they're like good people who aren't just like, well, I'm me and you're the girl I want to bone. So we'll only help each other. Like. (laughs) It does look like that's the route it's going, but then it, you know. They, they, yeah, they, they get Danny in on it. So they're like, okay, we'll meet downstairs at 2 a.m. Now, Scott has been doing, as I said, some sneaking around, and he went into the forest, the garden, um, to get his stashed gun, and he sees that Lobo is burying a coffin. Scott opens the coffin, and Jedro is in there, 
fully alive. <laughs> he sits up, uh, so he's not quite comatose anymore. Um, <laughs> zombie-like. Zombie-like. And uh, next thing we know, because Lobo's coming back because he got like pulled away from a, by a distraction, um, Scott just pushes Jedro back down into the coffin and closes the lid. Um, anyway, so Scott, Danny, and Grace meet downstairs. They're planning to escape, but they are foiled because Conway, Gilchrist, and Lobo come out with uh, guns. Which, I mean, it makes sense that they had guns because when you're doing these illegal activities, you've sure. got to have like a revolver around. Yeah. It's just kind of funny because like nobody's had any guns in the movie up to that point other than Scott's hidden one. So just like seeing like Tor Johnson come around the corner (laughs) with a gun. It's like you've had that the whole time. (laughs) With their escape plan foiled, uh, Danny and Scott are taken down into the basement um, and like held at gunpoint by Lobo while Grace is next to go under the knife. We probably don't need to tell you that the basement is a dungeon. Yeah, the basement's a dungeon. During their escape from Lobo, Danny gets shot, but he's like, it's fine. Keep going without me. He dies. Yeah. Scott manages to get upstairs and confronts Conway. And he's like, time's up, Conway. Hands up. I'm going to call the cops and, and bring everything down. And Conway's like, ah, you were a secret cop this whole time. Yeah. Mark Houston's his real name. He, he's been like snooping around investigating Conway because Conway somehow didn't realize that just sort of having people come to your clinic and then they disappear is suspicious as fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Conway manages to escape by turning out the lights, Mm -hmm. but Scott, I'm just going to keep calling him Scott for like ease of following this. Okay. Uh, His name is Mark. Okay. Well, Mark Scott. (laughs) Mark Houston. Um, He brings the boys down. You know, the boys take care of getting... Gilchrist um, and Lobo and everyone, while Mark goes after Conway. Now, before he can get to Conway, Conway encounters Jedro, (laughs) fresh from the grave and carrying a knife and just slowly walks towards him, stabbing him. Uh, Lobo comes in next, sees what has happened and kills Jedro. And then all the cops arrive into this room and uh, one of them says something really heinous. What was it again? Um, when they find Conway's dead body, uh, the like detective says, "Like, well, at least he saved the state some money." Yikes! <laughs> but yeah, so uh, Jedro is dead. Conway's dead. Danny's dead. Lobo is under arrest. Gilchrist is under arrest, and Scott and Grace get to kiss. But not before. One of the oh, cops shit. and one of the detectives heads down to the dungeon. You know, because Natalie's down there after all needs to be scooped up and they find another door that we haven't gone through the whole movie and inside are the beast men from island of lost souls uh it's a horrific sight and uh one of the cops says my god what if they do live forever yeah the end yep now normally when we ask the question what year is it right we are referring to Universal's traditional habit of setting their films in never when. Mm -hmm. In this case, it's a question of like, we're in 1957, but this is a movie dealing with glands and beast men. Yeah, basically everything in this movie is a cliche. And like a cliche by 1957. It really shows that the director was born in 1894. Sure. Um, 
because like we've got you know mad scientist in a big old house that's like a clinic and he's using his like patients who are like have mental health issues as subjects for his experiments and his experiments are glandular in nature to get you know immortality and some of the patients are hot babes and he's got an assistant who's a lady doctor who's in love with him but like he's too focused on science the experiments that fail turn into like monsters whether it's like the big brute guy that he has as a servant or like a random zombie or a bunch of beast men in the basement and then the protagonist is a detective who you don't know quote unquote was a detective the whole time and at the end of the movie is like actually i was a hero the whole time like there's stuff in this movie that's like going all the way back to like the bat yes and the monster and stuff like that and then you know you have all the gland mad scientist movies in the 40s like everything in this movie's old hat the only thing that's kind of new but not like new to this movie just like more 1950s than everything else is the idea of like psychologists are the bad guys but that fits with the trend that you've been seeing in some of these more recent films mm-hmm. that's what i'm saying yeah like i'm it's not a new thing either there's no new ideas here um you know we have the cop show up and arrest everybody at the end we get a like an explanation of what's been going on like it's all rote it's all cliche after cliche like i will say this the writing isn't necessarily bad in that there aren't any like big plot holes or like things that don't make sense. It's just that the writing also isn't good. It's very uninspired. It feels very paint by numbers. Yeah. Like you're just writing everything on autopilot. Absolutely. Um, It kind of explains why the writer didn't want his name on it. Sure. But it is kind of funny that he's like, only I did it. Jane, whatever the fuck her name was, had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Why do you want all the credit for this? Yeah, no kidding. It's like, come on, man. Uh, This isn't good. Kind of going back to that trend that Mm. you mentioned of like, oh, no, mental health professionals. When the cops discover the beast men... One of them says, like, well, at least we have institutions to help these men. Right. Except that's what Conway was supposed to be. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And it's just like, I don't know. That that felt so strange just put in there without acknowledging, like, the distrust that you're putting into these institutions by the whole thing of your movie. Right. It's sort of the equivalent of, like... Every time a plane blows up on the G.I. Joe cartoon, you always see the uh, pilot parachute to safety. Yeah. It's like just there to be like, yeah, these guys will be fine. Don't worry about it. Absolutely. Which is wild because they haven't even been in the movie the whole time. Like they, they're thrown in there because like somebody at some point was like, this movie needs to have like, you know, a scare in it for it to be a horror movie. So, okay, we'll throw in this upsetting thing. Right. Yeah. And honestly, that was one of like the more upsetting things with those beast men mm. was because like they're just, oh, no, beast men, close the door. It's fine. Whereas yeah. I'm thinking back to Island of Lost Souls, where you had like you were scared of them. You also kind of understood where they're coming from when they go on the attack. Sure. These guys um, don't look like they 
are the product of like prosthetic makeup. The guys who they find in this room look like the film production company like went down to a sideshow yes. and like picked up a bunch of people from the local sideshow and brought them in as extras for a day. They might have wigs and stuff to make them look extra hairy, but there's definitely some giants and there's definitely some small people. Yeah. And like, you know, people with um, disabilities, disabilities, like, yeah, missing just, limbs. Right. And it's like, I mean, we went into this when we did our f- episode on freaks about like the difference between exploitation and employment. Yeah. And yeah. this definitely is more in the exploitation it, side of it. It feels that way. Yeah. Um, I'm starting to really be bothered by how scientists and doctors are consistently portrayed in these movies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really awful. Part of me wants to say like, wow, no wonder like America doesn't trust science. They spent <laughs> like 50 years making movies about how all scientists are crazy madmen. But that being said, we always have to remember that our view is a little bit skewed because we're only watching horror movies. Yeah. So that's sort of something. But the thing that I've noticed is that it's almost become the assumption that like the mad doctor is the rule, not the exception. Yeah. Like there's this constant rhetoric about how like the lack of ethics and the desire to just kill people to get experimental results and do things without people's consent and, you know, do real crazy wild shit for no reason is just like how science is. Like, this is just what scientists are. Like there's so often, you know, some character will raise an objection and be like, but, but this is, these are people's lives. And inevitably the villain will reply like, what are lives in the name of science? Science doesn't recognize your puny ethics. (laughs) I think that's one reason why I really did like, I think it was the vampire Mm. where we have a good family doctor. Right. And even the doctor who is doing like the experiments on animals isn't like, and now to turn my experiments to people. It was like an experiment gone wrong. Yes, exactly. Because like to have movies like over and over again that are telling you like doctors are crazy. Yeah is not exactly something that like gives people confidence in science and the medical profession. I mean, I do have to say that like it takes a special kind of person to want to go through the many years of schooling and medical school and all of that to become a medical professional. But that doesn't mean that they are insane and only doing it so they can turn you into beast men. Well, the other thing too is this movie's also guilty of a very common faux pas of this period of movies (laughs) which is that like a scientist is all kinds of scientists like conway is seemingly running like a sanitarium for people with mental illness right like danny's got paranoia and, and anger issues and like we don't really know what natalie's problem was because of the emphasis on the smutty pulp i was like are they trying to say she's a sex addict? Yeah, not sure. Um, you know, Grace has anxiety, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But then, like, Conway's experiments are, like, biological. It's like, I'm going to throw a gland in you and stuff. And I'm also dealing with radiation. And I'm also, you know, whatever. And so it's this thing that we see over and over again of, like, a scientist is all scientists. We just saw this in I Was a Teenage Werewolf with, like, I'm a hypnotherapist, but I'm going to inject you with a bunch of stuff to turn you into a werewolf. Like <laughs> those aren't the same fields. Like you talk about the number of years it like, takes. Like is completely different from hypnotherapy. Right. Like you talk about the years it requires to like get a, a medical degree. Well, like let's talk about how many years you would need to be like 
a surgeon, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a biological researcher, and a radiation therapist. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's ridiculous. It's just very frustrating. Yeah. Because it's something we've been seeing in these movies for years. You know, it's just as much of a, a old cliche as everything else in this movie. And it's just kind of like, it's upsetting. Like, because, like, obviously the movie acknowledges that Conway's a bad guy, but... It's, it's like he's a bad guy because he's doing science. Like, there isn't enough to acknowledge. Like, because Dr. Wright's a bad guy, too. There isn't really enough to acknowledge that, like, no, there are plenty of other scientists who can do experiments without mm-hmm. killing people. Like, like yeah. scientific ethics are a thing. Medical ethics are a thing. I think what is kind of hammering this home for you is Dr. Gilchrist. Because she doesn't come off as insane. She doesn't come off as anything other than like a doctor. Mm -hmm. And she is like fine with these medical experiments. Yeah, exactly. Like they fucking turn Natalie into a living mummy or whatever. And Gilchrist's reaction is like, oh, Dr. Conway, like, don't be upset. Like one of these days your hard work is going to pay off. And there's this like woman whose life they just ruined lying on the bed and no one fucking acknowledges it. Yeah. And so it's just like, I'm really tired of it. I'm afraid that we have many years to go before we get through that trope being the standard. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'll be fine once it like comes back to being something that's like rare and a throwback. Like once you're at like Herbert West in Reanimator, like it's the 80s. Most of the villains now are like weird dudes in masks. And, you know, the other thing is once the genre pivots away from mad scientist villains we're going to be getting decades of he kills people because he's crazy yeah Um, which isn't good either yeah so there's always going to be something kind of problematic um going on here overall i find this movie fairly boring yes um on the tedious side yes and uh the actor who plays scott slash mark myron healy encapsulates all of that you know Like I said earlier, I don't know how boring I would feel if this was the first of this kind of movie I ever saw, but we talked about like the writing just being whatever. The direction's really bad. It's really bad to the point where screen direction doesn't matter to this person. So someone will be walking right to left and then they'll show up in the next scene coming left to right. Exactly. And it's like, but... Where are you in the world? Yeah, so the 180-degree rule is not followed. Um, The director seems to have, like, no idea how to create, like, interest or tension or suspense or excitement in his scenes. So one thing that he does a lot is he cuts randomly. Mm -hmm. Like, he'll, he'll have a camera that's set at the exact same angle. He hasn't moved the camera off its tripod, but he'll cut within the scene between, like, wide shot medium shot close up from that exact same angle uh just sort of at random throughout scenes and he'll throw in like weird shots um nothing really all that creative Mm -hmm. he's also a bad director because of the performances so like john carradine does an admirable job for bringing some like life to these proceedings but like he can play this role in his sleep yeah his voice is great yep always has been yes um but like anyone could be the director and they would have gotten like this exact performance out of him no matter what. Yeah. But yeah, all the other actors are just totally flat. 
the spectrum of performances we have are from reading the line in the most uninteresting way possible to reading the line as if you just learned to read. Like those are. I will give a kudos to the actor playing Danny. Hmm. Uh, he really goes for it. Yes. He thinks he's in a much better movie than he actually is. Yeah, he's he's trying to like Brando it up over here. <laughs> um, the thing about Myron Healy as Mark Houston is that he fails to make Mark likable, which is... Well, because he's supposed to be a murderer this whole movie. Right, but like, okay, so so something about that. I, I was super curious as to what was going to happen with Mark the whole movie mm-hmm. because uh, the cop revelation didn't surprise me, partially because when we first see him, he's skulking around the outside of the house like as if he's watching the house, and then he like specifically buries his gun and then like gets clobbered by Lobo and Bratton's side as if he's like investigating the house, you know, also because if he's really a murderer, then he has to die at the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, so it was like, okay, either this is not a code movie or he's not really a murderer. Yeah. I was really like, what was kind of keeping me interested in watching to the end, honestly, was seeing how they were going to, keep Mark around to be the other half of the breeding couple with Grace. Yeah, exactly. The reason why I say he fails to make Mark likable as if that's like important is because Mark is our protagonist. Yeah. Right. Like the audience should like Mark. He's not likable. No. And maybe part of that is like that they're trying to make it so that the audience thinks he's a scumbag because he has this killer cover story. But honestly, even once he's revealed to be like a good guy and the cop, like there's not much change in his characterization because although he's not likable, what he is is he's completely believable as a middle-aged 1950s white guy in like a position of authority. (laughs) Like he's totally believable. as just like a middle-aged white guy cop. Like the way that he talks to people where it's like, he's kind of being nice in a condescending way. Yeah kind of thing or that thing where like you know a woman says like yeah i'm just afraid of everything and my my whole life is just full of all these anxieties and i just don't know what to do and he's like well a pretty lady like you shouldn't be afraid of anything you're real beautiful you know that oh i guess you're right let's go for a walk babe like okay the rest of the cast fares pretty poorly yeah i mean the thing about it is I never really believe Allison Hayes is an anxiety case who's afraid all the time. Possibly because when things start getting scary, she stays remarkably calm. Yeah, there's no moment where you get a scene where she is performing that anxiety. Right. Like, if you're writing a horror movie and you're like, and the lead character's main characteristic is that they have high anxiety and get afraid easily... And they're in a horror movie and she doesn't scream or freak out or nothing. Yeah. Like she gets upset. She starts like crying at one point about what happened to Natalie or something. But that's kind of it. And it's like, man, what a waste of Alison Hayes. Yeah. Not to say like necessarily a waste of her acting abilities, but like that's not the role she should be cast in, you know? Yeah. I'm just really tired of this shtick. Yeah. Um, like it overall, it's just so uninspiring. It's barely interesting. And I have to say that like the earliest 
I don't know if it was like our first introduction to John Carradine, mm. um, but definitely one of the earliest ones was him as a gland doctor in Captive Wild Woman from 1943. Yeah. That is 14 years ago. Yeah. And he's still doing the same shtick. I'm just a little tired of it. Yes. And I'm tired of like, you know, here's a bunch of people trapped in a house and there's a mad scientist and he's doing experiments. And it's like, you know, and for some inexplicable reason, he has a big brutish minion. Like, here's the thing. Mark had that gun buried in the backyard like the whole time. Now, granted, he was there to try and get some evidence that like Conway was up to no good. Right. And they did try to escape at like their earliest opportunity once he did that. But like Danny fucking hates it here and there's nothing stopping him from leaving. That dog. Right. That's tied up and yeah. just barks real loud. Yeah. Anyways, this was really boring. Yeah. Let's rank it. Yeah. I have a spot picked out. Oh, good. I have a very small range. Okay. Let's hear the range first. Well, as I have already said and called out, this film has Carradine in the same type of role as 1943's Captive Wild Woman. Right. That is ranked at number 108. And despite that movie being half stock footage or reused footage, really, Mm -hmm. um, I would consider that more engaging than this movie. Yes. The part of the movie that isn't just a different movie edited in is better than this. But honestly, even that other footage is kind of interesting because it's a dude doing tricks with tigers and lions. Yeah, that's fair. That's totally fair. It's still better. Yeah. Yeah. So I I made my way down and I found myself around the low 150s. Mm -hmm. Part of this is because I went down to Jungle Woman Right, the other sure. Paula, like one of the other Paula Dupree movies. And I was like, no, you know what? Jungle Woman at 151, it has that underwater scene. Like it's it's trying to do something different. Sure. Um, the furthest I would go down, I stopped around 157, The Mummy's Ghost from 1944. Hmm. And that was really just because uh, I was like, that movie's not very inspiring either. <laughs> but above that, Voodoo Island... From 1957, not very good, but it did have carnivorous plants, which we had never seen before. Right, right, right. So I gave it credit for that. So my floor is 157. My ceiling, I figured I would probably not go further than 154, Plan 9 from Outer Space, because as much as, um, you know, some of that stuff we've seen before, Ed Wood is having a really fun time mixing things up. And it never felt like Petrov was having fun while making this movie. No, um, Petrov is making this movie the way that you make like a cake out of a box. Yeah. You follow the directions. Boom, you got a cake. Right, exactly. You sell it onto the next cake. So I'm looking way lower than you. Interesting. Um, Primarily because for me, the standout attribute of this movie was that it was very boring. Yeah. Um, So I was like, okay, what's the lowest ranked movie that isn't boring? At 183, we have Mesa of Lost Women, which is a terrible movie. And that might be a fun movie to riff on, depending on like what kind of person you are. But it's so inept 
that I think it's worse than the unearthly. Okay. Because as much as the unearthly is like making a box cake, the Mesa of Lost Women is like you're going to make a cake and all you can make it with are ingredients that you have left over in the cupboard. And the ingredients that you have are like a slice of bread, some baking powder, milk, and a Hershey bar. <laughs> it's like, make a cake. And you're, you're like, I've never made a cake before. I don't even know how to bake. And it's like, F- okay, that's name of the game. Guess you're learning on the job. Um, so Mesa of Lost Woman is very bad. Above that is Mystery of the Pale Face. Right. Which isn't good, but it's trying. And above that is Scared to Death, which makes no sense. And that's why it's very fun. Looking up from Scared to Death even, I was like, are these movies boring? And a lot of these movies are very bad, but like, they're not boring. Yeah. So for me, I'm saying 183, below Mystery of the Pale Face, above Mesa of Lost Women. Well, you make a good case, but this does feel a little too low. Um, Let's take a quick look at what's in between our two spots. That is is 170 so the halfway point here is black moon where people are trapped (laughs) in a house and black people who are rebelling against their colonial rule have come to revolt with voodoo below black moon is she wolf of london a movie that is just lying to you about what it's about yeah and above that is the ape man which is the the bella lugosi one yeah, right. Where okay. he gets sideburns. <laughs> I think even just because it has Bella Lugosi, the ape man is probably better than the unearthly. Okay. Like John Carradine, cool. But Bella Lugosi. Yeah, I mean, there is more entertainment value to Bella Lugosi with his like 1960s hippie haircut that he's got going on in that movie. Yeah. Black Moon has Faye Ray, but... It's not good. It's a better made movie, though. Yeah, that's probably... I mean, that's true of, like, She-Wolf of London as well. Catman of Paris is, like, a horror movie <laughs> made by people who were used to making westerns, so it's got, like, a wagon chase and a bar fight and shit. Yeah. This is a really hard area. Yeah. Um, this is what I mean, though, by, like, you know, like, La Llorona is not competently well made, but it's, like, a native expression of local folklore in a really interesting way that like is a you know anti-colonialist um the monster by roland west is like a kind of a dumb comedy but it also is like one of the first movies we saw that had a mad scientist in a big spooky house with lots of hidden passages and shit three cases of murder isn't scary at all but it is like well written and directed and made it just doesn't quicken the pulse at all yeah i think I think I'm going to agree with your spot um, as the new 183, um, given the things that you're, you've said and comparing it to other things in this area, like even um, Sex Maniac being here, uh, even like the Mad Ghoul that's here, that isn't actually that good. No, the Mad like, Ghoul's bad, but I'd rather watch it than this. Yeah. It's got George Zuko giving a young guy like Aztec injections to turn him into a zombie to attack like a concert pianist or whatever. Like that's wild. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go with your spot then. Okay. So entering the list at the new number 183, uh, bringing the total number of movies on the list to 199 is the unearthly 
from 1957, directed by Boris Petrov. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. And speaking of appeals, we will be having one to share later this week. Uh, so keep your eyes on your RSS inbox. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to our RSS feed and listen to the show through whatever podcasting app you prefer. If you'd like to help us out, you can leave us a rating or a review on the service that you listen to. Tell a friend about us through social media or when you see them in person. And if you have the means, you can support us through Patreon. Uh, as we mentioned at the top of the show, if you head on over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 level get access to weekly bonus audio. Patrons at the $10 level get access to monthly uh, bonus writing. You get all of our like cool Halloween projects in October, access to everything we've done in the past, and you help us put the show on each and every week so another thank you to colton and laura our newest patrons thanks colton thanks laura so ben what are we watching next week as our potential 200th horror film well sarah we've seen the son of dr jekyll but now it's time for the daughter of dr jekyll directed by edgar g ulmer director of the man from planet x detour and the black cat not that one no yes that one yes that one so it could be good it could be but it's been a while for (sighs) him so we'll see and we will see you next week creatures of the night bye bye bye